Okay, let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Father, as we come to your word again, we ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts to the truth of the word of God and for the gospel clarity. We pray that you would also illuminate our hearts to the plan that you have for the church age and its termination. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, uh, just to uh, review just a little bit. Um, we've worked with the uh, church for the last year and a half, I guess. And uh, we're now, uh, we've talked about the key events that close out this age of history. And we've talked about three in particular. Number one was the rapture. Two was the Bema seat. And three was the marriage supper of the Lamb. And remember that all three of these events are not revealed in the Old Testament. They are three events that are revealed to the church. And the rapture, whereas resurrection was revealed in the Old Testament, the rapture wasn't because the rapture ties together two things. It ties together the dead Christians who then received the resurrection bodies. And that is an astoundingly new truth because that's already in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. But what was astounding by the rapture announcement in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 is that the Christians who are alive translate immediately to resurrection bodies without dying. And that's, that's translation. So that's a phenomenon. And then once this happens, the believers, all the believers, all Christians, all people in Christ, then go to be with the Lord. So you have this, um, this event, and clearly it's the end of the church age. So that's what the Apostle Paul said was going to happen. That is the end of this era. Then the church... Christians, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 3, go to an evaluation of our lives on the basis of works. This is not an evaluation whether you're saved or not saved. That's already been decided, or you wouldn't even be at the Bema Seat. What it is, is a purging of all human good so that what is left is divine good. And that is, things that were done with proper motivation with the, um, with the uh, aid of the Holy Spirit. All the stuff we've done because of peer pressure to impress people, you know, impress parents, impress children, impress spouses, uh, all the false motivation stuff goes away. And what's left is the kernel, is the, is the genuine stuff. And then we have the marriage supper, which is the time when Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the head of the church, unites with his body, which is the church, and together prepare for the kingdom of God. Now, what's involved in that, the Bible doesn't tell us too much. So in Revelation 19. 
So these are three key events. And what we've been saying is that we're entering this period of our study where we're looking at the different viewpoints that have occupied Christians in the last two, three hundred years as to how do you tie these three events in with the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Because the Old Testament, if, if, if you label these three things here as New Testament, new truths, then you have the old truths from the Old Testament here which concern Israel as God's elect instrument in world history to be the vehicle of the scriptures, of the Messiah, and of world peace. And so Israel is the key instrumentality, not because they're better than anybody else, it's because God in his sovereignty chose them that way. That's the way he's designed history. And Israel has this role and Israel, because it's made up in the Old Testament of believers and unbelievers, can't start the kingdom until it's purged of all its unbelief. So Israel goes through various forms of discipline down through history, exiles, still technically in exile, times of the Gentiles still going on today. Israel doesn't control the Holy Mount. Gentiles do, United Nations uh, and the Arabs and so on. And so Israel is still in that status of not really being fully in possession of the land. And that's a signal of her spiritual state. So Israel is going to go through a period called the tribulation. And that tribulation is to rid it of unbelief so that the genuine believers are ready for the kingdom. And simultaneous with Israel, Israel is only one of many nations, you have the Gentile nations, and the Gentile nations go down through history, and they experience the tribulation, and the issue with the Gentile nations is, is whether or not they have submitted and recognized the plan of God through the nation Israel during this tribulation period because Israel during the tribulation will have some powerful believers inside the nation doing things. And there will be some powerful believers who are members of Israel or Jews who uh, do all kinds of things globally. And so there's a response because once again during the tribulational period these Jews who appear to be believers are once again functioning like they should have functioned in the Old Testament. Namely, they're taking the scriptures to the world and they're acting as prophets to the world as the Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah. If you look at Jeremiah and Isaiah in those writings, you'll see that it's not all addressed to Israel. Those guys had forays out to the Gentile nations. Syria is addressed. Assyria is addressed. Babylon is addressed. Edom is addressed, Egypt is addressed, and so forth and so on. So the Old Testament prophets had that ministry. <clears throat> well, that goes on, and so Gentile nations are given an ultimatum to submit to the king of Israel. Pick your side. You know, you've got the right to choose one way or the other. There's two choices. You're for it or against it. And there's no neutral ground. 
and then the nations, uh, the people in these nations are judged on the basis of their response. So, this is the Old Testament, this is the New Testament. So now the problem comes, well, how does the church fit in? How does this New Testament stuff fit into the Old Testament stuff? And the first, we're going to go through five different viewpoints. And the first one we're dealing with on page 120 of your notes is preteritism. Now, preteritism is a belief that you will find among largely reformed people of reformed theology. And here's in a diagram what, what's the story. Remember, there's three different views of the kingdom. One view of the kingdom is that you have the present age going on, and you have the cross, you have the introduction of the church age, and you have this period until the time of the end, and that's it. That view is amillennialism. A millennialism. A is always the negation. A theist, not a theist. A millennialist, not a millennialist. Believing that the prophecies of the physical, political kingdom of God in actual history, people walking around with mortal bodies, being born, dying, and so on, that that has to be interpreted in one of two ways. It either is a metaphorical picture of the church age in which we now live, or it's a picture of the eternal state yet to come. But there's no room for a millennial kingdom as such. Now, this position, by far, has dominated the Christian church down through its history. Particularly, it has dominated the church from the 4th century on down and to about the 19th century as far as Protestants uh, were concerned. Well, 4th centuries before Protestants. But what I'm saying is, until the 19th century, it wasn't seriously challenged. So all during these, these centuries, most of the church was a committed amillennial position. Most of it wasn't, I shouldn't say committed, because it wasn't well thought through. It was just kind of plopped there and left. An earlier view, however, viewed history as the cross, the church age, and then Jesus Christ would come and there would be this millennial kingdom. Then it would be the end of history. So you'd have this millennial kingdom, period. And it's called pre-millennialism. And again, the word pre means Christ precedes the millennial kingdom. That's what this is right here. That's premillennialism. Now, premillennialism was the belief of the early Jews who became Christians. Premillennialism was circulating in the first and second centuries of the church. There's no evidence it was amillennialism. There, there's, there's very explicit evidence that the church, early church, was premillennial. Maybe not well thought through. Yeah, that's fine. But 
but basically it was premillennial. Now you know from our discussions on Thursday night what happened in the fourth century. The fourth century was the time when Constantine, the Roman emperor, capitulated to the Christian religion. And he made Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire by decree. When he did that, the earlier persecutions, the idea the church was the enemy of the state, the enemy of the empire, this treacherous group of, of cultists, uh, that the church was not persecuted after the fourth century like it had been in those first three or four centuries. Well, when that happened, pressure was relieved and something else happened. Namely, the church kind of liked to get away from its Jewish roots. And so it wanted to be more just Christian and not just this Jewish thing. So when they did that, of course, they lost the premillennial emphasis because what, what's the basis of premillennialism but the Old Testament prophecies literally fulfilled? Now, who in the church do you suppose were adamant about the literal fulfillment of the Old Testament? It was your Hebrew Christians. So you give up your Hebrew Christians, you don't evangelize the Jews, you don't have any Hebrew Christian influence, so what happens? The church drifts into an amillennialism. The third position, which is an offshoot of amillennialism, is this. And I'll, I'll, it's kind of fuzzy here. Now, this looks like amillennialism, but it, this has a little twist to it. This is called post-millennialism. Post means after means Christ comes after the Millennial Kingdom. Well, if Christ comes after the Millennial Kingdom, what does that do to the Church Age? It immediately makes the Church Age part of the Millennial Kingdom. And the idea here is that things are going to get better and better and better, and then Jesus is going to come back. You've noticed that, of course. The world's getting better and better. So, point is here that, that post-millennialism arose within Protestant circles. Um, it was waylaid in the mid of the 19th century by liberals. The early liberal social reformers in America who basically denied the, the gospel and replaced the gospel with what they call the social gospel, namely uh, welfare programs and this and that. Not, not that it's bad. point was, however, that what they did is they, they shelved belief that the real issue is people trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, we, we have welfare, but the welfare flows out of the gospel. Well, those people were post-millennialists. Post-millennialists believed that by bringing in welfareism and so forth and so on, you would bring in the, the great conditions. Most of them then didn't even believe in the return of Christ, but you can see this idea of, of progress. That's post-millennialism. Okay. Those are the three positions as far as the Old Testament material go. Is there a kingdom or is there not? Now the next question came up in the 19th century when the church said, okay, how are we going to reconcile 
this Israel-Gentile thing with the kingdom and the millennium and everything out here with this. So, preteritism is the belief, and keep in mind that on this diagram with the all-male, post-male, and pre-male, think about it, if amillennialism dominated the church from the 4th century to basically our time, is Roman Catholicism pre-mill, post-mill, or amill? The answer must be amill. Roman Catholicism carried on after Augustine, because Augustine was, remember, he was the guy that made the Catholic Church the Catholic Church. Augustine did not believe there was salvation outside of the Church of Rome. He's the guy that started all that off. He had some good ideas, but he had some those ideas too. So Augustine was the first Roman Catholic theologian of, of stature. And he set off this amillennialism. Now when the Protestants left Rome, Luther, Calvin, those guys, when they walked out, they were men who had a lot of stuff they had to deal with. They had to deal with salvation primarily. So they emphasized doctrines of salvation. They didn't have time, they didn't have the energy, and they didn't have the impetus to deal with eschatology. So what do you suppose the reformers did to amillennialism? They carried it right on. Reformed theology never reformed eschatology. It kept it intact as inherited from Rome. So by the 19th century, you had a return to premillennialism here. Here, this thing begins to get... Because what's happening now is you've got your third, fourth generation of Protestants who are taking sola scriptura seriously and saying that... I'll, I'll cover this in black because we want to make sure that we understand where that's coming from. Um, that premillennialism came out of what? A return of literal interpretation. So, since it was a return for literal interpretation, they got back to the early Hebrew Christian positions and wound up with premillennialism. Now, here's where the stuff hits the fan. Because we have now the church age, we have, broadly speaking, the return of Christ and we have the Millennial Kingdom. And we have the Church Age. Now in this picture, how do you fit the predictions of this tribulation in here along with the rapture of Bema seat and marriage of the Lamb? Well, what basically happened was that most people just clustered it right here. Just packed it in a bag and left it there. Didn't deal with any fine details, just left it as a clump. Well, that wasn't enough because when Bible students started studying specific passages, you start unwinding things and deal with specific texts. So now what do we do? Well, this was a premillennial discussion here. The amillennials 
didn't have a problem so much because they didn't believe in this millennial kingdom. They just believed in the return of Christ, church age, and they glopped it here too. But the problem was that if you're a premillennialist, who occupies the millennial kingdom? Resurrected saints or saints in natural bodies? To fulfill a prophecy, people are dying, so they can't be dying if they have resurrection bodies. So the kingdom has to be made of people with natural bodies. Doesn't mean the resurrection guys can't be walking around, but, but the kingdom substantively has to be people in natural bodies. Well, if you're going to have Christ coming back and you're going to have resurrection, how, where does the resurrection fit? And you can begin to see things. If you're going to get a literal kingdom, now this starts to force things out into the open because if, if the rapture happens here and the resurrection happens here, then everybody's in resurrection bodies and nobody has a natural body to start the kingdom. So it was those kind of things that Bible teachers in the 19th century, between the years of 1850 and 1900, about, began to start on, on getting their teeth into this thing and find out, what are we doing? We've got to find more details here. Well, that went on to the various forms of tribulationism proposed, which we'll get into next, the pre's and the, uh, the mids and so forth. But this left behind all these reform people that were all male. Now, these people here are feeling the heat from all this discussion. See, there's a big discussion here. And lots of heat coming out of it. And what has happened in our time is that you have people like Tim LaHaye writing the series, you know, the last series, selling millions of copies of this book. People are picking it up all over the place. It's in the media. It's all over the place. Now, how do you feel if you're an all-male? You feel the heat. So, the response of all millennialism in our time has been to try to defend against this, this overwhelming premillennial eschatology. And what they have done is take the belief that the second come, all this glop of stuff here that we've never been able to sort out, and they're sort of suspecting that the Tim LaHaye crowd is sorting it out, and they don't want to sort it out because if they did sort it out, they'd come to the same conclusion. So the way they try to do this is to move this backwards over here, to get that clump of material behind us so it doesn't stand in front of us as far as historical time goes. So the idea is that a lot of the prophecies, and they have some, uh, some texts which we're going to get into. The idea is that if you can show, for example, many of the things in the Olivet Discourse where Jesus is talking about his return, if you can show that a lot of that material has already happened, it relieves the pressure, gets rid of it. And that's what preteritism means. Preteritism means it's past. That's what preterite is. It means past. What is past? Most of the passages we thought was the second advent of Christ have already occurred. Well, you say, what? Where did all this happen? I missed it. You know, run me by again. I'm a student of history. I didn't see it. So what they did is they attach it to an event right here called A.D. 70, which was the fall of the temple, 
and the judgment of God upon Israel for rejection of the Messiah. That event, they say, is the event behind the drama of the book of Revelation. That event is the drama behind Matthew 24 and its parallels in the Gospels. That is what Jesus was talking about. The imminent coming of God's wrath upon, the wrath of God. Okay? The difference, I just point this out right here to avoid confusion. The wrath of God that they're talking about in A.D. 70 was directed against the nation Israel. Now, whenever the wrath of God is directed against the nation Israel in the Old Testament picture, figure eight in the notes, table eight, whatever it was, you have God disciplining the nation, but not destroying the nation, right? The wrath of God disciplines Israel. But since Israel was promised an eternal destiny, when God disciplines the nation, yes, he fiercely disciplines it. I mean, think of the horrors of 586, 721 B.C., the, the, the northern kingdom going out, and 721, the, the southern kingdom going out in 586, the, the tragedy of the uh, exile, uh, the suffering of the Jews on being plundered, being destroyed. That has happened down through history. But God says, I will never erase my nation, Israel, period. I will discipline her to get her in shape, but I'm not going to end her. This interpretation coming out of this amillennialism, where we take A.D. 70 as an expression of the wrath of God, is a different kind of wrath of God. Because the kind of wrath of God that they talk about by identifying this cluster of events and moving it backwards to A.D. 70, that wrath of God is the termination of Israel in God's plan. That's what they mean. The termination of Israel. It's not a wrath of God against Gentiles. It's not a wrath of God against the church. It's a wrath of God against Israel because of Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't think you have to be a theologian here tonight to think that if you really thought this, it predisposes you, as amillennialism always has, to anti-Semitism. And historically, the Europeans, who have been dominated by Roman Catholicism in the south part of Europe, and in the north part of Europe, dominated by Reformed theology and Lutheranism, it's no secret that anti-Semitism has generally been the case for all of Europe. Jewish synagogues are desecrated in France. The Nazis, Germans, burned them in Germany. The Poles went after the Jews. The Soviets, Russians, went after the Jews because they were Eastern Orthodox and they were all millennial. Well, the thing I want you to see is, because I know some of you sit there and think maybe all this is theory. What I'm, why I'm citing this history for you is to show you that ideas have consequences and bad ideas have bad consequences. And it, ideas set off motion. Once you have an idea, it sort of fulfills itself in behavior. And these are the great ideas that have motivated European history for four centuries, five centuries, going back even further into the Middle Ages with Rome. 
So these are non-trivial things. They're hard. I, I apologize for, for keep reviewing these things, but these, this is where the effect of the Bible explains your world in which we live and the forces that are operating in it. And you get stuff wrong and screwed up and get the wrong approach, you're going to have the wrong behavior. And if you've got the wrong behavior, you're fighting the plan of God instead of going along with it. So we don't want to be in the position of opposing God and what he's doing in history. And the only way we can avoid opposing God and what he's doing in history is to get straight what it is he's doing in history. And you can't do that without eschatology. Eschatology is the essence, the, the doctrine of last things, which answers the question, where is history going? Now, some people don't care where history is going. That's why I'm fond of quoting uh, Henry Ford, who was reputed to have said in the 1920s, history is a sequence of one damn thing after another. Now, that would be an example of uh, history going nowhere. It's just there, just chaos. And sometimes you think maybe Henry was right. But actually, in all seriousness, there's a plan of God behind the events of history. Slowly, inexorably, it is moving to fulfill his plan. Now, let's look at preteritism per se. We want to understand this position of taking this cluster of events and moving it and attaching it to A.D. 70. So if you'll turn your notes to page one, uh, well, uh, page 120, where I introduce preteritism, and I point out there are two basic passages in the bottom of page 120 that I'm referring to. One is Matthew 24, the Mount Olivet Discourse, and the second is John's book of Revelation. Those are the two key battlegrounds for this area. So know your scripture, know where the controversy is, is, is going on here. Now I want to read some quotes, just so, you're, so you understand I'm not... When I go through on page 121 and we start going through this stuff, I don't want you to think that... Charles Clough is making all this up, okay? I've got a series of quotes here. Now, you listen. That's all you have to do. Just listen. I'm not saying these are right. In fact, I'm going to show they're not. But I want you to hear this with your own ears. These aren't my words. These are the words of the preterists themselves. Here's what one author said about the Great Tribulation. Quote, The Great Tribulation took place in the fall of Israel. It will not be repeated, and thus is not a future event. End quote. Clear? That they believe the tribulation is past. The great apostasy is one of the signs of tribulation. Quote, happened in the first century. We therefore have no biblical warrant to expect increasing apostasy as history progresses. Instead, we should expect the increasing Christianization of the world. End quote. You see that on every continent, don't you? The last days, according to Preterist, is a biblical expression for the period between Christ's advent and the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. The last days of Israel. That's what's meant by the last days. See what's happening? Understand here, this is slick. Errors aren't as easy as you think. There's enough truth mixed with every error to make it attractive. If it weren't attractive, it wouldn't be a problem. So if you think that something's obviously an error, you might just back up a little bit, because most error isn't clear. 
and watch how they're redefining words. Tribulation is past, great apostasy happened in the first century, the last days of the last days of Israel. The Antichrist. That's a term used by John to describe the widespread apostasy of the Christian church prior to the fall of Jerusalem. The rapture. That is a catching up of the living saints to meet the Lord in the air. The Bible doesn't teach any such separation between the second coming and the rapture. They're simply different aspects of the last day. Now, that's a chunk they left here, but see, they cluster it. They keep the rapture and the return to cluster. The beast. If the book of Revelation is passed, who was the beast? Got an answer. The beast of Revelation was a symbol of both Nero, in particular, and the Roman Empire in general. Oh, got an explanation for the beast. False prophet. This is a good one here. False prophet of Revelation was none other than the leadership of apostate Israel who rejected Christ and worshipped the beast. And the beast was Rome, and that's true. There was apostates in Israel that went along with Rome, right? Herod was one of them. The millennium. That's the kingdom of Jesus Christ which he established at his first advent. The period between the first and second advents of Christ. The millennium is going on now. Listen to this. The millennium is going on now. See what I'm saying? That's why I draw that diagram up there. I didn't make it up. With Christians reigning as kings on earth. The first resurrection of Revelation 20, verse 5, that's a spiritual resurrection. That's our justification and regeneration in Christ. A thousand years in the Millennium Kingdom, Revelation, you know, supposed to be a thousand years. That is a large, rounded-off number. The number 10 contains the idea of a fullness of quantity. In other words, it stands for manyness. A thousand multiples and intensifies this ten times ten times ten in order to express vastness, represent a vast, undefined period of time. It might require a million years. End quote. The new creation, Revelation 21. Those of you who have read it, new creation follows the return of Christ, the millennial. The new creation, quote, has already begun. The Bible describes our salvation in Christ both now and in the eternity as a new heaven and a new earth. End quote. The new Jerusalem. What's that? That's the city of God, which is the church. What did I say about replacement theology? See what's happening here? Watch how words are being redefined. Because if you run across some of these people, you better you'll be misled if you listen to their words because they define the words differently than you do. And you're going to be talking like this. No contact. Armageddon. What was Armageddon? That's in the book of Revelation. It was for St. John a symbol of defeat and desolation, a waterloo, signifying the defeat of those who set themselves against God, who obey false prophets instead of the true. There never will be a literal battle of Armageddon, for there is no such place. So, I, I think you have gotten enough for that. So, now let's go to uh, page 121. Last time we dealt with the first paragraph, we said and we reviewed it tonight, that basically the middle sentence of that paragraph, same metaphorical interpretation methodology of Augustine, and so forth. 
I said at the end of the second paragraph on page 121, preteritism is bound logically, theologically, and hermeneutically to amillennialism and postmillennialism. It cannot coexist with premillennialism. I think I've shown in diagrams tonight why that's so. There's a certain structure here that follows. Now we come to the bottom paragraph on page 121. Now we get into some texts. What exegetical justification do preterists offer? They cite New Testament texts that seem to anticipate the soon coming of Christ. With these texts in hand, they appeal to believers to defend the inerrancy of Scripture by adopting preteritism. Do you catch the argument they're making here? Sproul makes this argument. What he's saying is, if you interpret the text of the New Testament, and you read in the New Testament Jesus coming soon, he would had to have come soon, or that's a false text. So, 70 AD is when he came. And that saves us from the liberals who want to ridicule the text. In other words, they're talking about, we're just trying to, trying to keep inerrancy going here. It has a powerful appeal to evangelical Christians who haven't studied carefully the cited New Testament text. Jesus, they point out, clearly stated that his, in his Mount Olivet prophecies were going to be fulfilled in, quote, this generation, i.e., the one present as he spoke. Let me show you the text. Turn to Matthew 24. This is a favorite text. So let's look at it. Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus came out from the temple, was going away, when his disciples came up to appoint out the temple buildings to him. And he said, Do you not see all these things? I say unto you, Not one stone shall be left upon another that will not be torn down. And as he was sitting in the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, and they asked him these questions that led to the Mount Olivet Discourse. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now skip down to verse 34. Verse 34 is one of the preterist proof texts. Matthew 12, verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now you can see that, you know, you hit this raw and you say, well, gee, you know, maybe there's something to this. It says this generation will not pass away until all these things be fulfilled. So there's one of their key proof texts. Now, if you'll continue, we're going to deal with that verse, but we'll continue on the paragraph on page 120 of the 21 of the notes. The detailed additional revelation of Matthew 24 events through the Apostle John, what I mean by that is the book of Revelation. In other words, the book of Revelation is an amplification of Matthew 24. John the Apostle later wrote and expanded upon the Lord Jesus' preliminary discussion in Matthew 24. And Matthew 24 is an expansion of what? The Old Testament prophecies. So, when you read the book of Revelation, you read about something is at hand. It's about to come to pass shortly. Preterists claim they're literally interpreting these texts while their opponents, the futurists, depart from literal interpretation. 
Now let me show you what they're talking about. Turn to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which, what does it say? Must shortly take place. And he sent and communicated by an angel. Verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and who hears the words of the prophecy and heeds the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Chapter 2, verse 16. Repent, therefore, he says to one of the churches, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Chapter 3, verse 11. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, in order that no one take your crown. And we could go on through the book of Revelation, but let's skip to the last chapter, the book of Revelation, chapter 22. Verse 6. And he said to me, These words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the servants, spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. Verse 7. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render it to every man according to what he has done. And finally, verse 20, He who testifies to these things, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Now, it's this string of verses that appear to teach that Jesus was to come very shortly. And the liberal critics predators are right here, the liberal critics have seized upon this to say, see, the New Testament church actually thought Jesus would come back soon. Second statement, Jesus did not come back soon. Conclusion, the Bible's wrong. Jesus was wrong, and the apostles are wrong. Well, Christians don't want that. So the preterists are saying, well, gee, we've got to rethink our interpretation. Maybe he did come back soon and we missed it. Namely, A.D. 70. So if we can show that Jesus came back in A.D. 70, we save the Bible, apparently, from this criticism. Okay? This is where they're coming from. I'm, I'm just portraying what the preterists are saying. Now, beginning on page 122... I'm going to start dismantling the preterist position. I'm going to do so in a series of paragraphs, and I'm going to take you on a tour, which we won't finish tonight, obviously, but I'm going to show six different things that show that preterism does not accomplish what it hopes to accomplish. So I want to list these, and we're going to have them paragraph by paragraph. The first paragraph on page 122, you'll see that little next page thing. That's my change printers and the fonts didn't line up. So where you see that second, the last paragraph on page 122 begins with Preterist's most persuasive arguments. It's repeated on page 123, Preterist's most persuasive arguments. So you can flush that. It's a duplicate paragraph. 
in case you sleep while you get through the first paragraph, maybe you'll wake by the time you get to the next paragraph and get it, get it again. Okay? All right, the first paragraph. Of course, the most prominent problem with the preterist approach is the lack of Jesus coming back in A.D. 70. I mean, let's, let's start with, with the basics. The problem is that for all, when the bottom line is made and everything is said and done, the problem is, where did Jesus come in 70 A.D.? So A.D. 70, is that the second advent? Is that the coming of the Lord Jesus? If all the events of Matthew 24 and Revelation were fulfilled then, then where is the coming in A.D. 70? If A.D. 70 did all the earth, did, in A.D. 70, let, let's turn to Matthew 24. I, I want to show you some specific verses to show you the problem here. So let's turn back to Matthew 24 because, again, that's, the, that's one of the key discourses of the Lord Jesus. Okay? We're going to flip between Matthew 24. You have a piece of paper or a pencil or something. Put one in Matthew 24 and the other in Revelation 1 because we're going to flop back and forth here. In Matthew 24:30, here, here's just one. I could I could cite many, but in Jesus' discussion when he was talking about him coming again and answering the disciples' questions, look at some of the things he said would happen when he came back. Look at verse 30. When I come back, said Jesus the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Now, isn't that interesting? Quote, by the way, from Daniel, say. It's Old Testament. Jesus and man. When, and uh, I'll list it in your notes if you return to paragraph on page 122 of the notes. We'll just read through here. You can look up these, these verses. I can't do it all here because of our time. But do look these verses up. Next sentence, after Matthew 24:30, Did every eye see him, even who pierced him? Revelation 1, 7. Did he return from a cloud? Remember in Acts 1, when we dealt with the ascension, what did the two angels say to the disciples? As he was ascending, the angels said, Look, he's going to come back just the way he left. Now, how did he leave? He left off of the Mount of Olives, went up into the sky, and disappeared in what? A cloud. Two angels are sitting there. The disciples are going like this. And the angels say, that's the way he's going to come back. All right, question. Is that the way Jesus came back in AD 70? Any reports of him dropping out of a cloud onto the Mount of Olives in AD 70? I don't think so. Okay. Realizing the problem, some partial preterists, such as R.C. Sproul and Kenneth Gentry, split the second coming passages into two groups. One group, which I've listed there, the Revelation passages, supposedly refers to A.D. 70 coming in judgment against Israel, but the second group, Acts 1, 1 Thess 4, refers to another future coming in judgment against the whole world. So now we have two second comings. 
one in AD 70. And when you can't deal with that, and that doesn't fit, we plow all the other verses over to the second coming that we believe in. Other more logically consistent full preterists, such as Don Preston, insist that all such texts refer to the past event of A.D. 70. See, within the preterist camp, there's some debate going on. Christ's coming in A.D. 70 cannot be associated with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, liberals used to do that. If you go to a first liberal church on Sunday morning, Easter, and you hear about talking about Jesus coming, the code word is spiritual coming, and some of them really think that that's what Pentecost is all. That's when Jesus came back, Pentecost. Well, preterists aren't doing that. Preterists aren't making it Pentecost. They're making it A.D. 70. So, preterists, therefore, last, last sentence in that paragraph. Here's, here's, so here's point one. This business of in A.D. 70, it doesn't fit the model that we get for the second coming of Jesus. And so the last sentence, the conclusion of that, point number one, is preterists, therefore, are left with trying to associate it with a Roman invasion and judgment upon Israel. They are left trying to interpret present history as the manifestation of the long-promised kingdom of God that fulfills all prophecy. See what happens? If Christ came in A.D. 70... Then 71, 72, 73, 74, all the way up to 1999, 2000, 2001, 2002 as a member of what? The kingdoms here. Didn't know that, did you? So, that's the logic. So, point one, paragraph, this paragraph, what am I said? The preterist attempt to identify the coming with A.D. 70 doesn't fit the texts. The texts say certain things are going to happen in, AD, in, in the coming of Christ, and those things that the texts say didn't happen in A.D. 70. So you have to get greasy with your hermeneutics to make the text fit A.D. 70, don't you? Now what have you compromised? Literal interpretation. Okay, let's turn to page 123. Charlie, what's hermeneutic? Hermeneutics. I mean, it's the science of how you interpret literature. You interpret it literally, you can interpret allegorically. Uh, okay, paragraph on page 123. Second point. Okay, the first one was that AD 70 doesn't fit the second coming texts. Second point is the meaning of the coming soon text means something different than they think it means. In other words, what is the meaning of at hand and soon? Are, are, are these terms forcing us to have to see something close in to the time of the Lord Jesus or have to conclude that he was wrong and the New Testament is wrong. All right, so let's follow this. This is a little more difficult. So let, let's follow this carefully. This will be the last point for tonight, just this paragraph. Preterist's most persuasive argument concerning the time text, and I showed you what the time text, remember? 
took you to Matthew 24, I took you to Revelation, we looked through those verses. Those were the time texts. Preterist's most persuasive arguments concern the time text mentioned above. Text apparently indicating that Christ was going to come soon after his ascension. Lexical studies of the terms used, however, clearly show they have two meanings, not one. Soon can mean not delaying, but it can also mean, the Greek term here, means quickly. Now, let me show, illustrate the difference. Which meaning a given instance has must be determined by the context for the former meaning. That means soon. Here's what the, his would agree with the preterist. The former meaning occurs in 1 Timothy 3.14 when Paul says to Timothy, I am writing these things hoping to come to you before long. Was Paul hoping to come to Timothy shortly? Yes. So there the term does mean come soon. But the latter meaning occurs in Matthew 28, verses 7 to 8, and go quickly and tell his disciples, and they departed quickly from the tomb. Now, yeah, it means soon, but it means move it. It means quick. Uh, here's an example. If I were to say, using that Greek term, if I were to say, looking at a thunderstorm, I'm a weatherman, have to have a weather illustration. I'm looking at a thunderstorm, and I say, the bolt of lightning comes quickly. Now, do I mean that when the thunderstorm starts, the, the lightning, you start seeing the lightning right away, or do I mean that when the lightning comes, it comes quickly? And I can mean both. And how you interpret what I do is, that's the context. But you've got to be clear that the word itself has two meanings, not one, two. It can mean soon, or it can mean when it comes, it's going to come quickly. Okay? You can think of um, an airborne assault. And I would imagine if I was an Iraqi military strategist right now, I'd be concerned, especially since the 82nd Airborne is being mobilized. When an airborne assault occurs, it occurs quickly. Okay? Very quickly. Soldiers are on top of you all, all, all around very quickly. Now, I can mean the airborne assault is going to come soon in the sense maybe next week, not a month. Or I can mean when it does come, it's going to come quickly. You see, catch the difference in the meaning. Now, that's the fight about these time terms in the New Testament. Okay? Such passages sometimes use the illustration of a thief breaking and entering. Remember how many times that's used in the Bible? Matthew 24, 43, the thief. 1 Thessalonians 5, the thief. 2 Peter 3, 10, the thief. Now, the thought here isn't that the thief comes soon, but rather, whenever he does come, he comes so quickly that one can't respond. You see? Have we abandoned literal interpretation? No, we haven't. That's a literal meaning of the word. 
it's used two ways. These kind of time terms are used in the sense of short time coming, or when it comes, it comes quickly. The thought focuses upon the sudden interruption into the normal state of affairs, a miraculous intervention into history like the global flood of Noah's day. Remember what did they say? Nobody knew about it until what? Until the day that it came. In fact, let's turn to Matthew 24, 37. We're over here, Matthew. Turn to Matthew 37. Here's an here's a, a ideal picture of the second kind of meaning for these time terms. Matthew 24, verses 37, 38, and 39. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days, which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, and they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. By the way, how, many, how long did Noah preach? 120. That didn't come quickly, did it? In this first sense of the meaning of the word. Right? Flood did not come quickly in the sense of the first meaning. It took 120 years before it came. But what Jesus says, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Now here's Jesus himself characterizing his return, not in terms of meaning number one, but in terms of meaning number two. See? You gotta have, what was Jesus' head? Where was his head when he was talking about these things? He wouldn't have used the Noahic flood. It came soon, did not come soon. But when it came, boom, within hours, it was it. People had it. Ark was sealed. Earth started breaking up. Flood, rain, never saw rain before. All of a sudden, this water's coming out of the heavens. So you had a miraculous intervention. So we conclude now with a paragraph at the bottom of the, of the first paragraph, page 123. The, that the flood did not come soon. That flood did not come soon. It took over a century to come. When it came, however, unbelieving humanity were utterly unprepared. The New Testament was utterly unprepared. Bad grammar. The New Testament emphasis upon the quickness of Jesus' future coming points to its supernaturalness and unpredictability. That's the point of these time texts. So to review, tonight we have given two counter-arguments to preteritism. Number one, the model of the second coming that we get from the New Testament texts doesn't fit what actually happened in A.D. 70 unless you start allegorizing the text to make it fit with A.D. 70. The second counter-argument that we said is that the terms for at hand and soon have a second meaning. You don't exhaust it by just simply saying they mean soon. That doesn't exhaust the literal meanings. Because a second literal meaning is, whenever it comes, it comes quickly. And that's the point that Jesus is making. Because we say, right in Jesus' own words, right here in the Olivet Discourse, he himself is thinking that way when he's using these words. Because the way he illustrates it with Noah's flood. 
Father, we thank you for our time together, and we continue to ask your Holy Spirit to guide us through this difficult area of biblical truth, because we do want to understand where you're guiding history, that we may fit into the flow of your vast and amazing program. We thank you that we can rely upon the Holy Spirit, and we thank you for this inerrant text that we have. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, um, I guess we have some time. So I'll take 20. Yes. Um, question was about Marv Rosenthal. Marv Rosenthal fits in to the next to the last position I'm going to deal with. There's five positions. Predatism, and when we get through this, we, we basically then go into positions within our own literal camp. And we'll cover post-tribulationism, mid-tribulationism, three-quarter tribulationism, which is Marv, and pre-tribulationism. So we have all this stuff in the tribulation thing. So we'll go through all those four. You already in your notes have the post-tribulational issues that I deal with. Um, but that's where Marv comes in. And we'll get to him later. Any other questions? Debbie's not here to trigger us tonight. Well, we've got George. George is always good for a trigger. <laughs> this is just me not following along quickly enough, but the words that, that you would use soon and not long and that type of thing, are they, uh, I, I, I didn't get to, to see all of them at the right time, but do they sound right for interpreting it? Well, is that how some of these guys get off? They had chosen a different word with that kind of squelch. Yeah, George has raised an interesting question. Um, in translating from Greek into English, did the translators tend to bias the readers by repeatedly translating these terms such that they had meaning number one and not meaning number two? Uh, actually, when you get into this a little further, you'll see that the English isn't that bad because it's somewhat our failure to appreciate that English itself carries this, this thing. If I tell you, uh, visualize the word quickly. It's an adverb. And Jesus comes quickly. Um, English is ambiguous. Think about it. You use that word quickly, and you mean two different. You can mean one or two different things. So, if you're a translator, you're kind of stuck because that's the way English is too. English parallels Greek that way. Yeah. Because in the Book of Revelation. Jesus said, I come quickly. Now, that can mean one of two things. 
I'm going to come quickly in the sense that in a few years after I ascend, I'm going to come back. Or it can mean when I come, I'm going to come quickly. And the thing that makes you decide, it's the old rule of Bible interpretation. You, context determines the meaning. And if in Jesus' own discussion, when this whole thing comes up in Jesus' discussion, okay, if you look in the Mount of Olivet Discourse, and he himself picks Noah's flood out to be the issue, and he uses that as a model of what he means when it means come quickly, doesn't that, in the context, force you into meaning number two instead of meaning number one? And the repeated use of thief analogy. The thief comes through. They knew not until the thief broke in and stole. Thieves don't take a long time to steal. Right, Paul? They do it, the pros do it quick. That's right. Take it from an experienced policeman. Okay? These guys can rip your car off before you can put the key in the ignition. I mean, they really are skilled. Not the kids that want drug money or something. They're stupid. But, I mean, the professional guys. A really skilled professional crook is kind of admirable in the sense he's a real artist at doing this stuff. He does it quickly. And so that metaphor, the thief metaphor, tells you it's meaning number two. The Noah's Ark metaphor tells you it's meaning number two. So you've got built into the textual context enough information to, to wean you over to number two. Now, there's another theme that rises here, and I'm not emphasizing it in Preteritism because it's going to come back up later, particularly with Marv Rosenthal. Um, and that is the issue of imminency. Now, imminency is something I haven't discussed too, too, too much here because it really doesn't pertain to the preterist issue. But imminency is the idea that Christ could come at any time. That no prophesied event need take place before the rapture. Israel does not have to be regathered before the rapture, technically. If the rapture is told, Jesus says, I'm coming for the church. And he doesn't tell us to look first for an event prior to that point. Then we say, it's imminent. Okay? Now, another expression in English for something that is imminent is, it's at hand. Remember what John the Baptist said. The kingdom of God is, but it didn't come. What did John mean by that? Let's think about it. John used exactly the same expression. The kingdom of God is at hand, but it didn't come. Now, could it have come then? Yeah, if Israel had accepted Jesus, the kingdom would have come. So it was at hand, was it not? But it didn't happen. So when, the, the, so when you're talking about the second advent of Christ, it says, it's at hand. Tonight, it's at hand. What do we mean? It can happen tonight. doesn't mean it will happen tonight. Uh, Tommy Ice uses a neat illustration. I'm not a football fan. I don't know one team from another because I don't follow them anymore. After I left Texas uh, and the Dallas Cowboys, I never followed football again. Um, but he has this neat expression in one of his prophecy books. He says, you know, he says the, whatever the mole is has been at hand for the Buffalo Bills. But they never got it. And what he means was they were so close to getting it and they didn't get it. 
It was at hand. So the expression at hand has a contingency meaning to it. It can or it cannot. And see, that's not saying that it's going to come soon. See, that the, the soonness meaning isn't part of that expression. So here's we've got to get sharp. And this is why this is not easy material to deal with. And uh, you know, I apologize for it because this is not a course on eschatology. It's a course in the biblical framework, but I have to get into eschatology to deal with the end of the church age. So that's why we're here. Um, but I'm, I'm just trying to warn you that there are subtleties here. And you really have to think, have your head screwed on in looking at the text. But it's not esoteric. I mean, we can sit here, we can discuss. The, everybody knows what thief comes quickly. It's all within our grasp. We don't need a PhD in, in Semitic studies to understand this. Any Christian can understand it. It's just you have to pause a little bit, turn off the TV for a few hours, and, and think. I know this is stressful to some people. But the point is that that's the only thing that kind of gets you through this stuff. Okay? So that's what we've tried to deal with number two up here tonight. Is you've got to beware that there's a, there's a range of meanings. We call that the semantic range, by the way. Words have semantic ranges. And one of the fallacies of Bible study is that where we can trip up is we haven't considered the semantic range of words that they can have these different kind of meanings. And people don't like to hear that because they want some mechanical approach, boom, 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 I put in a computer and get out the interpretation. It doesn't work that way because these words have certain semantic ranges. And the other thing that you have to watch for is that different authors will use the same word differently. You want a good illustration of that? Eternal life. Take a concordance someday and look up eternal life only in the writings of John. Then take another piece of paper and list all the cases, eternal life, only in the writings of Paul. Now, if you do that, you get two pieces of paper. It's the same word. One is John, the other is Paul. And you start looking at them and you say, whoa, wait a minute. These guys are talking about something different. To Paul, eternal life is future. To John, eternal life is now. Those two guys use the same word two different ways. Doesn't mean they're in conflict because John is bringing out... Remember, John wrote his Gospels after all the other guys did. And he was led to the Holy Spirit to kind of fill up the holes of that which was lacking theologically. So, so John wants to stress something and Paul wants to stress something else. But you've got to be careful. You can't take eternal life... Always means something future. You try that with John, you've got a problem. So it's the old story in, in context. And I always visualize this. When I study the Bible, I always study it in context. Here's a way to think of it. There are circles of context. The nearest context is the immediate verses. So you've got a puzzle word here. So you look in the verse before and the verse after. And you kind of go whoop, like this. In John, Matthew 24, you go through the whole chapter because it was one discourse of the Lord Jesus. And so you check it, check it out, check it out, check it out up to here. Okay, that's the beginning. And you check it out, check it out, check it out here. That's the end. So now I've got a chunk of text that's Jesus' discourse. And I try to use that text, that context, to interpret my word. Well, sometimes it doesn't work. 
So then what do I do? Well, Matthew 24 is written by who? Matthew. So before I go to Mark and Luke and John, I better check the word how Matthew uses it. He's a, he's a government bureaucrat, used to filling out forms, keeping records. Mark doesn't do that. So you just want to look at Matthew. Well, maybe you can't find it in Matthew. Now you're kind of stuck because now you've got to go Mark, Luke, and John and see kind of how they did it. Sometimes that doesn't work. Now what do you do? Now you have to go in the contemporary literature of New Testament times, the papyri evidence, and find out how, what were people doing in that day? How did they use the term? And so sometimes you try to get material there. Usually you don't have to go that far. Usually it's in the context. But it gets back to something that George and I were talking about a while ago. George works with uh, quite a few of the reform people in his workplace. And one of the things George was saying was, you know, you observe these guys, and one of the things you notice about them is they don't really get into the text. They can tell you what the creed says. They can tell you theology. They can go through systems of theology. But when it comes to talking about verse XYZ and what the passage says, it, it gets kind of mixed there. And we don't want to fall into that trap. We have to know the text of Scripture. There's no substitute for it. Got to know that. And that takes a long time, especially in stuff like this. Yes? Well, okay, Don, Don's asked a question about, it's a good question about, uh, since eschatology is so determinative of where you're going, priorities of life, it sets them up, why don't you see this emphasized more in the church? And then she added that is this time of history, it's just the time of history. Well, I think that's partially true, Don. I think that in the last two or three hundred years, that's really the only time the church has had time to sit down and think this through. Because we've been under siege with Rome, had to deal with who Jesus was, had the Arians running around thinking he was a man, had the Sabellians running around said that God wasn't a really a triune God, he was just a God had three masks, and he showed up as the Father one day and showed up as the Son another one. And so then we had to deal with the Trinity. And, I mean, you know, a lot of stuff has gone over the dam here. And it's part of the maturing of the body of Christ. And I think this, we live in the age in which eschatology is being beaten out. And I think that if you think about this in terms of how in past church history, the Holy Spirit has always energized and motivated us to dig into his word by allowing apostasy to, to nip us. You know, the, the, the wolves come into the sheep and start biting and it's only then the sheep move and the shepherd gets active. And so I think that's what's happened here. If you think in terms of the kind of persecutions that the church has run into progressively and repeatedly in the last 200 years, it's all false eschatologies. For example, communism. was the 90% of communism was eschatology. 
the dictatorship of the proletariat assured victory. And we know where Marx got it from. Ironically, communism comes out of the book of Daniel. The idea of history moving toward. Here is an atheist, doesn't, but he doesn't want to admit it. But the idea of the history's progressing toward a goal comes only from the scriptures. Because paganism, just history goes nowhere. It's Henry Ford and the Greeks going around in circles. So, so you have that, that thing. But then I think there's another reason why it's not emphasized in church. is because it requires a lot of Bible study. And we happen to live in a very lazy generation, so used to watching television, they can't think more than two and a half minutes. And the poor guys that are up here teaching the words see everybody sleeping after 20. You know, it always amazes me that people can sit in a congregation, especially the younger kids, and it seems like it's always the home of the 15-minute bladder. Now, I'll bet you when they sit and they watch a football game or go to see the Oreos, you don't see them running down to the John every 15 minutes. But that happens in every congregation I've ever been in. It's like bladders contract or something when everybody sits in the pew. And you have this thing that goes on, any kind of distraction or anything else. And I'm telling you, the pastors get this in the material that is sent to them, the professional journals of teaching pastors. You know what it's saying? You've got to entertain people. I can just see John Calvin entertaining people. John Wesley, John Whitfield, they entertain people? I don't think so. I mean, they, they intrigued people because of the word of God that they spoke. But you can't see Martin Luther and Katerina, whatever her name is, his wife, sitting down, Catherine, now what are we going to do tomorrow to entertain our folks? And Catherine sits there and says, well, Martin, I don't know. Let's see if we can make some toys and show them tomorrow. I mean, this didn't go on in church history. Come on. But that's where we are. And the sad thing is, it's promoted in the professional journals that the pastors get. It's taught in our conservative Bible-believing seminaries now. One of the rules in seminary is you cannot teach a group of adults more than 20 minutes. That's a bunch of baloney. Lynn goes up here, and how long do you teach the, the inmates? An hour and three quarters. And she's teaching guys, half of whom are illiterate. When in the sense of, not illiterate, they can't read, but illiterate in the sense that a lot of them have never been trained to think. She gets them to think. Hour and three quarters that woman teaches inmates. And we're worried about 20 minutes. So there's a culture problem we got, and it's bad, and no one in the church, few people are, standing up and saying, no, that's not the way we're going, and I'm sorry, if you want entertainment, go down the street someplace. This isn't an entertainment center. We're not here to entertain you. And people need to say that. But they're not. So there's, there's a culture problem, and then there's a church growth problem. Yes. Is uh, through any of these passages, um, and outside the passages that we've talked about, mentioned the kingdom of God, um, or the kingdom, what are the different terms used in Scripture for the kingdom and the kingdom of God? Is it always the millennial kingdom, or is there some sort of a, another sense to that? The issue, the question is, what about, what's the language, what's the terminology in the Bible for the millennial kingdom? Well, nowhere will you see the word millennial kingdom. 
that's just a theological term based on the thousand-year reference in Revelation 20. But there's plenty of uh, occasions um, talking about um, the kingdom either explicitly using the word K-I-N-G-D-O-M or the ideas discussed. For example, you all know Psalm 2? It's a messianic psalm. And it talks about the king coming. And you better bow down to the king. Well, it doesn't mention the word kingdom in that sense. But you know by reading the context. The, the psalms that begin with 9, 90, 91, 92, 93, 94, read those psalms. They're called the enthronement psalms by scholars of the book of Psalms. Call the enthronement psalms because all those 90 series look forward to when Yahweh reigns. Well, now, see, you've got to watch it here, folks. Don't be sloppy. When you read in those psalms, Yahweh reigns, don't get goosey and religious and talk about some syrupy little feeling. Oh, Yahweh reigns. Wow. That's not the way they read that. When they said Yahweh reigns, they meant that Yahweh rules in a kingdom. And what kingdom experientially had they experienced, were they part of? It was the kingdom of Israel, with a temple, with a priesthood. That's how they conceived of the kingdom. And I believe that's one reason why God gave us the Old Testament, to give us a picture of what that future kingdom is going to look like. If he hadn't, we wouldn't know what the kingdom looks like. Well, our time is up, and next week we'll move further through preterism. Okay?